Welcome to Culture Matters, a podcast that explores the intersection of faith and culture. I'm Adam Griffin, and I'm here with my co-host today, Adam Hawkins. Sadly, Elizabeth was not able to join us, but we do have a special guest and a conversation today with author and political commentator, David French. Well, we are so glad to have you on here with us, David. Now, for a lot of people, we would read like a little short bio, but your bio is so extensive. You have so much that you've done, so much that you've written on, and you've got a new book out as well. Would you mind just giving our listeners who aren't aware maybe of who David French is, what would you want people to know about you? Uh, well, I'm Christian, husband, father, um, lawyer, um, writer, veteran, <laughs> um, and also um, all, as so much of a token geek, I'm almost uh, fluent in high elvish. Wow. Um, no, 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 no. I will say though, I will say though, I, and I don't know if my uh, oldest daughter or her husband will listen to this, but there was a point in time when I had so indoctrinated the family in Lord of the Rings and Silmarillion love that my my oldest daughter actually kept her diary in Noldoran Elvish. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> you're hoping she doesn't hear this because that would be embarrassing to her or I think she's proud. <laughs> okay, I think she's good. proud, but I'm not so that sure that I had the, I'm <laughs> yeah. not so sure I had her permission to share the anecdote. Oh, so, gotcha. Yeah, that's well we'll edit out you saying you're not sure that you had permission. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. We'll Thank you rest. for that. <laughs> well, David, you do have a new book out too called Divided We Fall, America's Secession Threat and How to Restore Our Nation. Now that title sounds a little maybe to the layman or the person who doesn't know you, sounds a little like the sky is falling. Sounds a little like uh <laughs> Uh, everything is falling apart. Is that is that the nature of this book? Is that where we're going? Well, you know, it's kind of funny you say that because one of the things that I write a ton about is I, I'm so tired of the alarmism of modern political discourse, like the thing that says, if you vote for Joe Biden, America will end, or if yeah. you vote for Hillary Clinton, America will be over. Um, and so, you know, it's I've written extensively against this thing that I call Flight 93-ism after this famous essay in 2016, um, where a guy named Michael Anton wrote that the 2016 election was like the uh, presented to you with a flight 93 option, charge the cockpit or die. Uh, in other words, go for vote for Trump or or America's over. And the the irony though is, I believe that the flight 93 ism, the constant alarmism, is actually driving each other up, driving us apart, and creating its own crisis. Uh, but the book is a lot deeper than that. What, what the book says is there is no single truly important cultural, political, religious, or social force that is pull uh, that is pulling Americans together more than it's pushing us apart. Mm. And so what we're facing right now in our country is increasing geographic division uh, through a big sort. People are clustering with like-minded communities more than we've ever done since in modern times that that big sort is creating increasing polarization and extremism because people who, when people of like mind gather, the law of group polarization, a concept uh, articulated by Cass Sunstein more than 20 years ago, says that when people of like mind gather, we get more extreme in our points of view. 
Um, to such an extent, we often now can't even communicate across partisan divides. And not only are we sorting and clustering on polit- on a political basis, you can also overlay we're, uh, we're clustering on a religious basis. We're clustering on a cultural basis. It's remarkable. You can look at television viewer maps of viewing habits of Americans, and they will track the voting maps. So there's red TV and there's blue TV. There's red sports and there's blue sports. About the only sport that's left that's truly like multi-hued is the NFL. And we all know how politically peaceful the NFL is. <laughs> and so, and and you could handle all this diversity. I mean, our nation was actually built from the ground up to handle a lot of disagreement, but what it cannot handle is mutual hatred. And mm-hmm. so the other thing that I've that I talk about in the book is that we are growing not just more apart in our beliefs and outlooks, but we're growing more apart emotionally. The data is overwhelming that repu- that red and blue do not like each other. Um, the average partisan Republican doesn't like the average Democrat. And the average partisan Democrat does not like the average Republican. And at the edges, you're now beginning to see something called that some researchers have called lethal mass partisanship where people are so in such oppositional stance that they actually wish physical harm on their political opponents. And so what I say is, quite simply, you just can't keep doing this and expect us to stay a unified, united country. And there's a lot of historical reasons for that. There's a lot of sociological reasons for that. And and there's a lot of ways that we see in the world around us how that can't work. And so I'm trying to raise the alarm if we keep trying to destroy the opposition, we may destroy ourselves. Now, I know you, Adam has a bunch. Think, sorry, I was going to say Adam let has Let me some jump in here. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, yeah. let Adam talk. Yeah, no, come on, guys. No, I. It, it's interesting you say that because I. I. Um, I think. One thing uh, maybe we like to say to each other is this idea that, well, it's the extremes that are getting all the airplay, right? So um, this idea that there's research out there that says the average Republican and average Democrat don't like each other um, is is kind of a more alarming thought to me because, yeah. what you know, there's a sense in which when I look at the political landscape, I'm like, there seems to be a... a, a to your point, the growing differentiation, the growing um, um, atomization uh, and all those things just seem so, so apparent, right? The feedback loops and everything else um, are bubbles, I guess. Um, but I, maybe I like to think that there is this massive middle who's sort of fed up with the extremes. Is that true or is that not true? It's true and not true. Okay. <laughs> okay. So here's what's not true about it. It used to be that if you were going to be thinking of the American ideology, you would have this big bell curve where there'd be these people at the edges and um, most Americans are center right, center left. That is decreasingly true. Well, In fact, what, if you notice what, what's happening is that bell curve is flattening. Both right and left are bunching more on the extremes. Not bunching all the way to the extremes, it actually turns out there's a lot of research that says that Republicans overestimate the extremism of Democrats and Democrats overestimate the extremism of Republicans, Mm. but the extremism is increasing. Okay, so that's where um, there isn't a big middle as much anymore. So that's where 
that doesn't exist. But here's where a big middle does exist. It's more temperamental. <laughs> so people who are not viewing politics as central in their lives. So they may be generally progressive, maybe more progressive than they were 20 years ago, or generally conservative, maybe more conservative than they were 20 years ago. But you do have what um, some researchers have called an exhausted majority that is not focused on political combat. And the actual political combat is driven by a minority. So it's a subculture that is deeply invested in politics. Um, but, and they don't, th- those people are that deeply emotionally invested are a subculture. The unfortunate thing is they happen to be the subculture that defines the whole. They define American politics. So the bad news, if you're looking for like this big consensus that's just waiting to happen, is that we don't have as much consensus on issues as we used to have. The good news is there are a lot of people who are weary of fighting the problem is in that phrase, exhausted majority, the operative word is exhausted and not majority mm. because a lot of them are just checked out. And what they do is they leave the field to the motivated minority that is extremely toxic, extremely hyper committed to politics, more likely to view politics sort of as a hobby than regular, you know, normal Americans, more likely to be on Twitter, you know, more likely to be doing all of the war, the social media warring that we see day in, day out. So, David, what's the um, – as you sort of paint this landscape for us, that was really helpful to know. What's the danger um, – like what's the actual danger? I know in your in your book you kind of – what's called America's Secession. You set up this – you know, there's an implied, at least in the title, uh, the danger might be secession, uh, greater, greater um, societal breakdown. But um, – I get yeah, so I guess I want to ask that question, and then I also want to ask this because I've followed your work for a long time and I'm, I'm a huge fan of it. Is the fight really between left and right anymore, or is the fight between those who still believe in classical liberalism and those who believe that we should use the government's coercive power to strong arm our own moral feelings? It seems like the debate has shifted. You know it. It seems like we all used to agree to some extent to your point earlier about America was built to handle diversity of opinion because it agreed on the fundamental classical liberal, in a sense, uh, idea that we could argue our way, right? We can live with each other. We can agree to disagree and we can argue our way towards compromise in a sense, you know, Um, uh, uh, that we use reason, right? We use reason and we kind of uphold these different civic values in order to do that. There's a lot more we could say about that. Um, it seems, though, that th- those ideas, this left versus right, it's it's that's certainly there. But what it, it seems stronger now that with identity becoming so much more of an issue, with with sort of the, this move away from reason towards an emotional reasoning, it uh, it seems like what people are saying is we're not willing to compromise anymore. We're not willing to use reason anymore. We're not really interested in the classical liberal project anymore. We just basically want to silence opposition and use government's course of force to do that. We've talked about that a lot on the show is maybe one of the real dangers. So I guess my first question is, has the debate changed? And then the second question is, what's the outcome of all of this? What's a potential outcome? Yeah. Well, so that the first question, has the debate changed? Yes. Uh, okay. So what you have right now are, I, I, I would, to overgeneralize, I would say four factions, not two factions. You have okay. left liberals and left illiberals, and you have right liberals and right illiberals. So what do I mean by that? So a, per, a person who's left liberal, and I'm using the term small L liberal, 
is somebody who has um, got more progressive views of public policy, but they are committed, as you said, to the classical liberal American order. That doesn't mean they agree with right liberals on the full parameters of the First Amendment or that, you know, there's going to be disagreements on the, the reach, the exact reach of the Bill of Rights and a lot of things. But this fundamental commitment to the classical liberal order is retained, okay? And so that under that segment, right and left can disagree a lot and it doesn't strain the system. It the because both believe in the system itself, okay? Um, and, and classically, you know, uh, going even back to, to pre-abolition days, I mean, Frederick Douglass, for example, was somebody who appealed to the ideals of the system to reform the system. You know, he famously said that um, free speech is the great moral renovator of society and government, that free speech is the dread of tyrants. That's appealing to a classical liberal value to reform a system. Um, illiberalism is essentially saying, like, like imagine you go into a town council meeting and you argue your case to the town council and you don't get what you want. The illiberal, the liberal response is to say, well, let's go vote. Next time we'll get what I want. The illiberal response is to say, there's something wrong with the system. That's why I didn't get what I want. The system mm. has to change and fall. Mm. And and so what you're seeing, so for example, under a lot of um, definitions of critical race theory, one of my problems with critical race theory is it explicitly condemns often liberalism. You've seen debates on the right, you know, Patrick Deneen, Adrian Vermeule, Saurabh Amari, um, who say liberalism has failed America. And so what then happens is the alternative to liberalism is some form of authoritarianism, typically. It's not typically anarchism. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's some form of authoritarianism, typically, and that authoritarianism creates a, a will to power or nurtures the will to power that you know a lot of us have sort of as part of like our sin nature. Mm. It nurtures that will to power, and it seeks to dominate um, rather than accommodate. And that, that's kind of compressing a really big argument into a short sure. description. But... Yeah, so it's really funny. I feel like we now sort of have two culture wars in this country. One is the old school one um, that is, you know, what are gun, gun, the extent of gun rights or, um, you know, the extent of uh, abortion rights or the limits of the First Amendment. That's like old school, religious liberty. That's like old school. That's been going on for a long time. And then we sort of now have this like new school thing that is, oh, should we even defend the principles of the American founding? And that one, that one is in many ways, as important as these other issues are, that one is foundational to a nation's sense of itself. Um, and so, you know, that's one thing that has really ratcheted up the temperature because it's already contentious enough when you're talking about religious freedom, abortion, gun control, you name it, health care. When you add on top of it a threat to the system itself, that takes everything up several notches. Well, let me take it from there to more like present day. This is a really good kind of a prescriptive diagnosis of how it, more extreme, what is the real argument. But now on the ground, a lot of our listeners are thinking about, when a lot of our listeners are Christians, are thinking about this fall's election. 
And mm-hmm. some of them might be thinking it via policy. Some of them might be thinking of it via person. They might be thinking of it via party. Uh, but can you help maybe some advice or some wisdom? The Christian who seems very confused on what to do with the increasingly polarized uh, maybe increasingly homeless feeling they might have around politics who feels conflicted and doesn't know how to prioritize policies and people yeah. and parties. Boy. <laughs> so uh, let's go back to some basic starting principles. One is God did not give us a spirit of fear, okay, but yeah. a power and love and of sound mind. So try as much as possible to cleanse yourself of fear-based politics. If somebody is going to sit there and say, Joe Biden will hurt God, to quote the president. <laughs> no, or, you know, that, you know, the, the fear-mongering, socialism is imminent. If you're making decisions based on America will be over, okay, no, check yourself. Th- then at that point, you're part of the problem, okay, not, not part of the solution because you're contributing to sort of this ever-escalating sense of doom cycle that we're in. So one, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Number two, Cleanse yourself of the partisan mind, okay? Your identity, your core identity has nothing at all to do with red or blue. Your choices about public policy flow from your core identity, which is a believer in Jesus Christ, okay? So that's the first principle. So that means when you shed yourself of your partisan mind, you're liberated. You don't have to act as a lawyer for red team red or team blue. You become an umpire. Hmm. You become the judge of team red and team blue, okay? So shed yourself of fear, shed yourself of the partisan mind, put your identity squarely in Christ, and then uh, understand, and, and, and then understand, apply the same principles that you apply to your decision-making about things like, um, let, me, let me give you a good example. We do a terrible job of inculcating in American Christians a political theology. So essentially what we do is we say, here's what the definition of a Christian in American politics. It's a person who's interested in these issues, okay? So what's the Christian interested in? Religious liberty and abortion, Well, which is what you would – really being precise, that's what more like white evangelicals are interested in. Um, religious liberty and abortion. That defines the Christian in politics. Well, that's not how we treat the rest of our life. So let's say you're a professional. Let's say you're an insurance agent and, and your agency is about to go under. Like there's serious stuff going on. Like your, your agency is about to go under. That means you're going to have to take your kids out of school, move, sell the house. It's awful for you. And somebody came in and said, you know, you can save your agency. Not if you commit consumer fraud, but if you hire an agent who will. A Christian would say, no, I mean, no, no, that's not how you do it. You know, I know, but what we've done is we've kind of cleansed our sort of our political selves from the same moral rules that we apply in the other parts of our lives. So instead, now what we've done is we say, you know, I know you're not supposed to hate your enemies, right? You're not supposed to hate your enemies, but I, I have I got a deal for you. You can hire somebody to hate your enemies. And his, his name is the president, and he's the president of the United States. <laughs> yeah. And we often, and so Christians have become very adept at delegating our sin <laughs> to the politicians that we hire. So that's what, a long way of saying, do not discount character, okay? There is no position 
in American life that is too important for character. In fact, saying that out loud just would betrays the craziness of the position. The more important the position, the more important character. So that's a super, con- the, the, you asked a big question. I've monologued a bit about it. Let me boil it down. Okay, I boil it down. I have a two-part test. My two-part test is this. Um, first, does the candidate have the character, character that is commensurate for the position that they seek? And I have a higher character test, the more important the position. That's You have to pass one. If you don't, do not pass number one, you don't get my vote, period. Then you move, if you can pass number one, you go to number two, which is do they broadly share my political values? In other words, not perfectly. Nobody agrees with everybody and everything. But do they broadly share my political values? And if they have the character necessary for the office and they broadly share my political values, you get my vote. If you don't, you don't. And that I feel zero compulsion to vote for either a Democrat or Republican in any given race. Because I have this very simple-minded view that says, if you want, if you don't want low-character politicians, don't vote for them. And and I think that that principle applied at scale will send a message to the parties and saying that says, hey, you know what? There's this whole block of believing Christians that aren't going to vote for a scoundrel. And so if we want uh, to win elections, we should not nominate scoundrels. And, you know, there was a, a very interesting recent, uh, f- a recent election that really illustrated that principle, and that was when Alabama primary voters sort of vomited forth Roy Moore <laughs> as the candidate for the Alabama GOP Senate seat. And they did, and, and most people said, well, Roy Moore is going to be a senator because you almost have to try as a Republican to lose a Senate seat in Alabama. And you know what? He lost it. He lost it because not everybody, but enough Alabama Republicans, most of them self-identified evangelicals said, nah, nah, nope, that's too far. Not a, not that scoundrel. And so he tries again the next time, and he he's an afterthought in the primary. Let me bring it personal a little bit. Adam and I are pastors at two different churches, and um, you know our main different demographic is probably somewhere between. Adam, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the, I would say the thrust is probably somewhere between late twenties to mid thirties, and of course we have a, a wider range than that. But that's probably young families that kind of age. And the more the more I talk to people, and this includes my own personal feeling, the more I feel very orphaned by the incomplete. I, I, that's a word that's been thrown around uh, probably since 2016. Felt very orphaned by both parties because of the things that you just stated. Um, character is key. Um, that that we're not just going to see um, uh, these elections through. Uh, the, the well, not even a grid, but through one issue or two issues that we're going to try to uh, up, apply um, the wisdom from Scripture uh, in how we vote. What so maybe getting really practical? You know, there's some historically Christians have made, I would say, some mistakes, um, yeah. and and that, that's being you know making that, that's making making but currently. <laughs> but I, I think you can go back, and I mean, I you know. One of the things that I think has happened, especially as I talk to the younger, young, younger crowd, is they look through this lens and go, okay, in the 70s, you've got this birth of moral majority into the 80s. You've got this pairing of Christian 
I don't know, evangelicalism with republicanism. And the the main – I know there was – you can – there are some probably good things that come from that, right? And I think you could probably look back and find those. But that's not typically how we look back at that. Typically we're looking back and going, man, that grosses me out a bit. And Mm -hmm. then today – uh, what you see is most of those guys um, or their kids who run large universities. Um, who are you? Uh, <laughs> clarify, please. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, was it all of, was it all fake anyways? What moral majority, what morals? And then we're voting for people who don't seem to share our moral convictions. What, what can we do in this election? Because I think one of the, the, one of the ways to sum up what you were saying is we're not, we're Christians aren't pragmatists either, you know? Yeah. And so help us think through, wait a minute, we've got, you know, we've got judges on the line, you know, we've got abortion politics on the line. We've got religious freedom on the line. And you're telling me to not vote for Trump because I don't like him? Well, what if I just vote straight party ticket? Or what if I just vote, you know, help, how how would you help a person in my congregation think through this coming election and the, so, and the two main parties? And do we have another option? So here, here is, um, let me, let me just make some things kind of clear. Sure. Religious liberty is not on the line. Okay. So, so a lot of our starting presumptions, and here's here's another big one. All right, this is a big, big, big one. Abortion is not on the line. Okay, so a lot of our we make a lot of decisions based on in on uh, incorrect starting presumptions. Okay, so on the one hand, there's there's no issue so big to sin for it. Okay, so we can we should just get that out of the way. There's no issue too big to send for it. Um, but you know, this the magnitude of issues do adjust, do impact pragmatic decision making uh, out, outside of sin, of course. Um, but what one of the things that has happened is that um, a an enormous amount of disinformation is spewing into the public sphere about the fragility of our rights. Or the state of the of the abortion debate, and um, just to give you a sense of religious liberty. Now, that doesn't mean that any given religious liberty case isn't important, but they're not. They're not definitional. There are the boundaries going to be a little bigger or a little smaller, but the heart of it, the core of it, is very safe. How safe? Since 2010, so in the last decade, there have been 15 major religious liberty cases that have gone to the Supreme Court. All 15 have been won by religious liberty advocates. That's a 15 and 0, okay? And you might say, well, it's all delicate. It's all 5-4. No. The majority of them are super majority, 7-2, 6-3, or more. Some of them even 9-0, okay? For example, one of the most important the most important religious liberty case in my view of the last decade is a case called Hosanna Tabor, um, Evangelical Lutheran School against the EEOC, and this is a case where the Supreme Court said nine to zero. Okay, so that's Ginsburg, also, but you know when uh, that's that's the whole progressive wing, nine to zero that non discrimination laws do not apply to ministerial employees at all, period, end of discussion, okay? And so you talk about a zone of autonomy for the church to choose as pastors and its ministers, that's like the heart, the heartbeat of religious liberty 
And then another case that was just decided last term, 7-2, essentially says, oh, and by the way, the definition of who is a ministerial employee is basically up to the, to the religious institution. And so the religious institutions get to define who their ministerial employees are, and then it's the state is hands off. And that's not fragile. That's not delicate. That's 9-0. That's 7-2. That's just one big issue. But a 15-year, I mean, 10-year, 15-case winning streak has secured religious liberty to the point where religious liberty is more protected now than any time in the history of the United States of America. So it is not the case that religious liberty is about to fall. It is the most protected it's been in American history. Now, let's go to abortion. I'm pro-life. I think Roe is a terrible decision and should be reversed. Let's just get that right. I have been pro-life my whole career. In 1991, I helped form what I think is the first like um, student-created pro-life group at Harvard Law School. I have raised millions of dollars for pro-life causes. I have litigated on behalf of pro-life Americans from coast to coast. So I'm, I've put my money where my mouth is for decades. And I've learned a lot in that time. And I've learned a lot. And one of the things that's fascinating to me is one, we're winning the battle to save lives, and two, we're losing the battle to overturn Roe, okay? Mm. How can those things be the same? How can they, those be simultaneously true? In 1980, the abortion rate peaked in the United States of America. It is right now, as of today, lower than it was. The abortion rate has decreased to the point where it's lower than it was before Roe was decided, so in other words, the abortion rate in the U.S. is lower than it was when abortion was illegal in many states. That's how much the pro-life movement and a bunch of other factors, too, have influenced the debate over and the decision about whether or not to abort a child. So the abortion rate has decreased. The abortion ratio has decreased. You know, abortions as a percentage of pregnancies, and the total number of abortions has decreased, even though the population of the U.S. has grown considerably. That's a tremendously good news, and it's decreased under every president, pro-choice or pro-life. At the same time, after 47 years of trying to overturn Roe. Do you know, guys, know how many justices of the Supreme Court are on record saying they want Roe overturned? How many? One. Hmm. One. Eight of the nine have applied some version of the Casey standard, which is the, the most relevant standard protecting abortion rates. Eight of the nine. Okay. One, Clarence Thomas is the only one who is unequivocally on the record as a Supreme Court justice as, as saying that Roe and Casey should be overturned. He did it most recently this past Supreme Court term, and no other justice joined in that opinion. Hmm. Not Kavanaugh, not Gorsuch, not Roberts, not Alito. Now, that doesn't mean that maybe one day one or more of them might if it's put back to them, but this idea that we're just this close to overturning Roe is completely wrong. It's mm. completely wrong. So, and then here's the last thing. Guess what percentage of abortions will likely still continue to happen if Roe is overturned, according to the best available data? If Roe is overturned, what happens to abortion in the United States? About 90% would still happen. Oh. About 90%. Because what Roe does is what Roe says that a state cannot outlaw abortion. 
But if you reverse row, it just returns the issue to the states. And the states that are most pro-life, that have passed the most pro-life laws, here's what's interesting about them. Most of those laws locked into place after the abortion rate in those states had already declined <laughs> considerably. Mm -hmm. So here's how the abortion rate varies. According to the most recent data, which is a couple of years out of date, but most recent I've been able to find, the lowest abortion rate in America is five abortions per 1,000 women. That's in Utah. The highest abortion rate is in New York. Now, if Roe's overturned, New York's laws don't change. Utah might be able to ban abortion, but it already doesn't have very many abortions at all to begin with. So we get into this, this position where we say, and look, all other things being equal, you know, if you have a, a, a high-character Republican who's pro-life and a, a high-character Democrat who's pro-choice, I'm voting for the Republican. I am. I'm just, uh, that issue is going to tip me. But... Um, we have said about the national election that it's indispensable and critical and absolutely unavoidably um, necessary to to vote for the Republican no matter what, because if you don't, babies will die. That's not what the doctrine or our experience tells us. And the mm. last thing, this was a long answer, the last thing is why would abortion decline so much? so much, even though the laws have remained mainly intact. Well, the University of Notre Dame, researchers at the University of Notre Dame did a super comprehensive survey of American abortion attitudes, found that a super majority of Americans still support some version of the Roe-Casey framework, but also that of all the more than 200 people that they gave in-depth, that they interviewed in-depth, not one supported, was comfortable with that personal choice choice. Even people who'd had an abortion, they mm -hmm. wished there weren't abortions. And so people are increasingly viewing pregnancy as precious. And, and I think that that's a cultural change in the United States that's driving down the abortion rate more than anything that law has done. Well, I think a lot of what you're saying is going to be really, really challenging and, and maybe welcome to a lot of people that are hearing. And I know that you're, you don't shy away from these topics in your writing either. Um, I think one of the things that you're talking about that I find really interesting is there is a drive, I believe, in people to vote for somebody out of fear that if I don't do this, then it's going to lead to more babies dying. But I think there's also... Uh, an appeasement that happens in a lot of Christians' hearts that say, I'm doing what I can to end abortion by voting for somebody that is pro-life. But it sounds like what you're saying is the biggest difference that's been made in the pro-life movement may not be from legislature and may not be from elected officials, but more from changing hearts and minds of, of people or changing uh, what's around us. And so bringing it back to kind of the, the ministry idea here, we are going to have a lot of people that even based on, on, on what you said here today may be uncomfortable when it comes to character with both of the main candidates put forward and may be uncomfortable with the broad uh, policy ideas of both candidates put forward. Uh, but they may find, um, based on uh, what you just laid forward, that people within their own church, some of them will, following uh, that kind of um, structure, uh, land, uh, that's why I feel okay voting Democrat. And some will say, that's why I feel okay voting Republican. And maybe we'll say, that's why I feel okay voting third party. And having a church with a diverse voter base, which we do, and I'm sure Adam does too, we'll have people that land outside of that issue. But to your first point you made about how divisive this is, 
what do we do in a church that is so divided, that has people voting for different parties based on the same justification? How do we as a church not end up as a mini version of what you're saying could happen to America, where people secede and say, I'm just going to go to a church that's more politically affiliated like me, and we're just going to increasingly divide? How do we stay united as a body of Christ, exploring these things together? So number one, we got to have a lot of grace for each other. You know, I just went into two super important issues at a pretty granular level of detail, okay? 99% of people don't have the opportunity to go into granular detail, not just about the issues they care about, you know, or about multiple issues, like even one issue. You know, there's this, this, you know, this scripture we see through a glass darkly, mm-hmm. we know in part, um, and we see through a glass darkly, you know, I mean, I, I live, eat and breathe these issues and there's a lot, I don't know. Like when you talk about the, the decline of the abortion rate, for example, what you're dealing with is a whole bot of, a whole bunch of data supported good guesses about why that is. Um, and you, you know, no, we're talking about a big complex country, you know, so one of the things that you have to do is approach a lot of these issues with an atmosphere with humility and and understand that we're all operating under different data sets. We're all coming from uh, into polit- political decisions from with different backgrounds and histories. Um, what I do think, though, we should do is we just got to draw the line at sort of out, at outright sin. <laughs> okay. Um, as we engage as Christians in politics, all of the rules, all of the rules of human behavior still apply. Love your enemies. Bless those who persecute you. Do not lie. Um, these, n- there is not a, you know, I'm, I'm so sick of this phrase, this is, politics isn't beanbag. As if that grants us carte blanche to do what we want. You know what isn't beanbag either? War. And you know what war has? Laws that govern it. And we condemn, even to death, people who violate the laws of war. You know, war isn't, war isn't beanbag, um, but it has rules. It has laws. It has moral laws. Politics isn't war. It has moral laws. It has moral rules. And what I have issues with, I have issues with lying and the defense of lying. I have issues with cruelty and the defense of cruelty. Because I, I don't think that, as I said earlier, we get ourselves off the moral hook by hiring people to sin for us. And, and you got to look at your heart. If, if you say, man, I, I just like, you know, look, I'd never, I'd never speak like Trump does. But sometimes I just love the way he just, hmm. you know, punches back so hard. Uh aren't you kind of delegating your sin to the guy? And is that good? Is that good? I don't think it's good. So I think if we can have a lot of grace for each other and still draw moral lines, and I mean, isn't that a biblical model? It's not, you know, uh, shall we keep sinning so that grace will abound? (laughs) We we should have grace and, and we should also draw some lines of our personal conduct. David, if you wouldn't mind, I'd love for Adam to get to ask you one last question. I know that he's got a thousand more, but I want to honor your time. But Adam, can you ask David your final question, and then we'll land the plane here. <laughs> I think I, 
Yes, I can. Um, so you talked specifically about Christians in our particular context in church. How can we disagree in a church setting over these political issues? Well, we can remember what the Bible tells us, right, about, like you said, at bottom— uh, we can agree that God is not pleased with sin. In fact, he's so aggrieved by it, he had to send his son to die for it. So we can all kind of come around that core belief. But maybe taking it back to your book really quickly, what are some of the solutions um, to the divide that you propose in the book? I know you talk a little bit about mediating institutions and some other things like that. I think it'd be really helpful for our listeners to hear. In other words, maybe instead of focusing so much on those issues that we were just talking about, there are some other things that need to be strengthened in our society that, that maybe our listeners aren't really, don't really understand how big of a role they play uh, to help healing some of this divide. Yeah, that, let, me, let me start with the biblical principle, one that Lin-Manuel repopularized from George Washington, but George Washington pulled from the prophet Micah. <laughs> okay, so if you watched Hamilton, you know that George Washington quoted this uh, passage that said, every man shall sit under his own vine and his own fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. Now, what was the significance of that passage to George Washington? It, interestingly enough, I did some digging, and I, I write this in the book, and you find that almost 50 times he used that phrase in his correspondence almost 50 times. And in what context? This is where it gets really interesting. He wrote to one of the most in, in one of the most um, famous letters in American history is, is George Washington's letter to the Hebrew congregation of Rhode Island. And he quoted that passage to one of the world's most persecuted religious minorities, by the way, who didn't know its place in this new republic, to say, you have a place here. Here, you can have your own vine and your own fig tree, and no one will make you afraid. And that is a beautiful depiction, I think, of a biblically informed pluralism. This is, look, I might disagree with you. I might disagree with you on theology. I might disagree with you on morality. I might disagree with you on the very critical point of whether DC is, in fact, greater than the Marvel uh, Cinematic Extended Universe— <laughs> Um, DC is better, but I might disagree with you, but you know what? You have a place here. You have ability to create a self-governing community here. And that self-governing community can be a civic association. That self-governing community can be a mosque or a church or a synagogue. Um, that self-governing community can be a town or a city or a state. And to the ma maximum extent possible, we're going to empower you to create a self-governing community. That's what we're going to do. And we're going to have reciprocal obligations. I will fight for the rights of others that I would like to exercise myself. And, and I think that that's a, that's a vision of pluralism, because let's, let's be honest, y'all, this country ain't getting less diverse. And when I say not getting less diverse, I don't just mean race. It's getting more racially diverse, of course, ideologically, religiously. Um, I mean, it's just getting more diverse. And so how are we going to accommodate that? The answer of some is to dominate. It's to defeat my enemy and essentially render them subordinate to me and my faction. The founders would say, that's not just wrong, that's dangerously wrong. And that the response is, 
every man shall sit under his own vine, his own fig tree, and no one shall make him afraid. And then the one other thing, and this is a principle I put in the book, and look, we as the people of God, we as the followers of Jesus Christ, need to remember the triple interlocking obligations. Again, let's go back to Micah. Micah 6, 8, what does the Lord require of you, O man? What is good? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly before the Lord your God. And these things, not all three of them are mandatory. So act justly is the part that, like, that's the right, you know, that's somewhat something that gets easy for us. That's like my righteous indignation. I want to make sure that just things happen in this country. And, you know, that's sort of the Twitter hashtag, or that's the protest, that's the, that's the political activism. And, and, but then there's the other two, love mercy. Well, that means I have love for my, and regard for my political opponents. I have grace for those whom I believe are wrong. But then there's the third, walk humbly. Isn't that the recognition I might be wrong? Isn't that the recognition I might need to hear from other people? Yeah. I might need to understand their perspective. And I, I think of those three interlocking obligations all the time. And you guys as pastors, just imagine if Micah 6.8 was infused in the ethos of your congregation, how you could live across differences. You, could li- you can live across differences in a Micah 6.8 community, because even though you'll disagree on important things, you're still loving mercy and walking humbly. You can endure profound differences in that environment. So that's the vision I try to paint in the book. And that's excellent. And I'm sure there's a lot more to that book than we're able to get to today. David, I am so grateful for your thoughtfulness. Uh, And if you guys want to hear more of David's thoughts, there are a lot of places you can find his writing and he writes on a a regular basis for some of us, not often enough. David, maybe maybe a couple times a day would be nice if you could start poking some stuff out. I'm, I'm behind on a 2,500-word piece about the origin of the Supreme Court Wars for the Wall Street Journal, so I'm getting a little—sometimes you—it's uh, it's a blessing. It's a blessing to be able to write about these things, and sometimes it's pretty daunting at the same time. <laughs> well, if you if you need a ghostwriter, Adam will gladly uh, contribute no, some. No, no. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, hey, Adam, I will send you my draft. Can you finish it for me, please? No. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Culture Matters. Today's episode is recorded and mixed by Chris Starrett. Our producer, as always, is David Rourke. And if you like what you heard, please give us a great review wherever you listen to the podcast. You can follow us on Instagram and find us at our patron page, patron.podbean.com slash culture matters. Thank you, listeners, and God bless you. Thank you.